Bible this morning, please, to Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Philippians, and we're looking in chapter 4. At the collected commands and promises of Philippians 4, 4 through 9. <clears throat> this is a little list, a little section in the Bible for you to... Uh, Preacher's kid gets a pulpit Bible. Here you go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any more, sorry. But um, Philippians uh, 4, 4 through 9 is a beautiful little collection of commands, and some of them come with promises that if you do the command, you get the promise. <clears throat> uh, and this is really helpful in terms of a summary for how to think about life in so many ways. Why? Well, it specifies a lot of how we're supposed to think about ourselves, about God. It tells you by way of command what your life is and what you're supposed to do with it. And um, these commands are not burdensome. This is what Jesus was talking about, the easy burden or the, the light burden and the easy yoke that he offers. But they are commands and they are our responsibility, and this does amount to Christian duty. He says, and I'll read from the New American Standard, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, then the command, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, the command, practice these things. And the God of peace, promise, the God of peace will be with you. I'm amazed at the pushback I'll get at times on emphasizing the commands of the New Testament. So what I prepare for you today in part is a rationale on the concept of Christian duty as we've just heard it. Things that God commands us to do. And he says all the time, like rejoice. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord all the time. Like that's the, that's the Christian command. What a gift. This is Christian duty, and it is a gift. And I have 20 things that I want to tell you about Christian duty in this rationale of Christian duty. We've read the passage. I'm going to summarize what the New Testament sort of is doing. The New Testament is doing with the commands that God has issued us. Not that all the commands of the Old Testament are not relevant to us, but the way God communicated in his dealings, in his covenant arrangement with Israel is different than how he's dealing with the church. And that's a lot of what the book of Hebrews is about. There's a difference that's happened in history. And all scripture, as I told you earlier, is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and instruction and in righteousness. But if you gentlemen religiously go down to have surgery in Galatians, then Christ will be of no profit to you. He says, if you're thinking that faith plus any work, including the big surgery that, that the, the Judaizers are proposing from Genesis chapter 17, but th that there's, a, there's something that's different in the way God is dealing with us. There are many things that are the same, but I want to talk specifically today about Christian duty. When Jesus tells us what he wants, abide in me and I in you. 
That is not a, you might want to abide in me and, and then, you know, you'll get the benefit. It's not a, um, would you like to abide in me? It's a straightforward command to believers in John chapter 15. So this is what I'm calling Christian duty. And the first thing I want to say is I, I sometimes will give you bullets because this is how I think. And so I, I had a friend that says, I hate when someone gives me the points, point one, point two, but I'm very different. I love it because it helps me organize things because you don't want to see what's going on in here unless there's some sort of structure. All right. The commands of the Bible are helpful for us because they help us understand what God wants. Now that's a shot across the bow of humanism because the human thinks in his sinfulness that he is good enough and he knows well enough. And if I were God, then th this would have, it would be how I would do it. And that's as close as humanistic religion will get to God, which is not close at all. We are broken and sinful, and that sinful brokenness extends to our cognition, to our conception of history, to our understanding of our historical circumstances. We are really limited, and God isn't, and he's revealed to us what we should want, what we should do. And this is what the commands of the Bible do for us. Well, I thought we'd go over here and do this, and God said, but this is what I want you to do. But what about, what about over there? No, this is what I want you to do. And that's what the commands of the Bible do for you. Second, therefore, the Bible's commands are God's grace provision. And this is so important to get. I've got people that are saying, but, but you're trying to be legalistic and have people have, have law to, to obey, but we're under grace. And what they have misunderstood, and that's a horrible misunderstanding that you're not reading Paul very closely at all. You're misunderstanding Galatians and Romans. If you understand what the commands of scripture are, for the Old Testament, for Israel, under the covenant expectations that God gave them, those commands were blessing and life and grace. The commands of God for Israel were grace. I mean, let's talk about public sanitation. In the plains of Texas, as the historians will suggest, the nomadic tribes would have to pick up and move after a while of being in the same place because they didn't want to live in their own sewage anymore. And so they would pick up and go somewhere like our forebearers, not too long before us who had outhouses, not, not, not a closet, water closet in the house, but an outhouse. After a while, you'd have to pick that thing up and dig a pit somewhere else and move it. I mean, this is history. Like, why are we talking about this at Christmas time? Got my candy cane tie on or talking about sanitation in the Mosaic law. God tells them how to manage the camp and it's awesome. And it's command it's like put it here. This is how far. And, and that's, it's kind of a common sense thing. And it's it, God presents it to them in language that makes it moral that you do it this way. But the moral requirement of removing your filth from your, from your, where you live is hand in hand with a health benefit. Right? So I'm just saying the, the commands of, of all of scripture for those to whom they are offered are always God's grace. But what we are is sinners. And when God says, walk before me and be blameless, he's giving us a requirement that we and ourselves cannot fulfill. And what we're supposed to do is hit our knees, beat our breasts, raise our eyes to heaven and say, God, help me a sinner. I can't do it. And that's the savior. That's the cross of Jesus Christ for everyone who looks at God's awesome instructions and says, I, 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 I fall short. And that's what the law is. And yes, we are called to the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2. 
bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ to love one another as he's loved us. Well, I struggle with that. I don't do that consistently. I don't want to love today. I want to be, I want me time. And I mean, I want to do what I want to do and I don't want to be involved. And we have our weak moments of selfishness and we're not excusing it. We're saying we fall short of our standard. What do we do about it? We started to confess our sins. God says, love. I say, no, okay. I've disobeyed him. I need to confess it. It makes me, makes me spiritually dirty and he wants to clean me up. So I'm just saying the, the law of the law of Christ in the new Testament or the Mosaic law, these were never legalistic. These are never, um, uh, something that is meant to, um, to, um, base your life on your satisfaction with your keeping it or your self-righteousness. The law, the commands, the Bible is always given as God's grace to you. So they don't, they tell us what we're supposed to think, say, and do. That's the third point. The law or the, the, the commands of the new Testament for us tell us what we're supposed to think, what we're supposed to say, and what we're supposed to do. And that's offensive to people that think they're good enough on their own. I mentioned that before. I mean, this is a very offensive message. Unless you humble yourself before God and you wait for him to exalt you at the proper time in first uh, Peter five, six. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Now I'm told by beloved friends in the, in the Lord that um, we're missing the point by emphasizing the commands. But the thing is, I've read closely the New Testament in Greek and it's everywhere. The, the commands are the structure of the discourses in Paul's letters and Jesus' instructions and the, the narratives even. So the commands are helpful because they tell us what we're supposed to think, say, and do. And that's the word supposed. That's the the standard. So fourth, thus they initialize our consciences. And that is where we're getting into human or anthropology. Inside your inner person is the capacity to compare things in a moral sense so that you know what right is. Something comes into your perspective that violates that standard and there is a judgment that you make and that sunidesis is the greek word in the new testament is what we're calling your conscience your capacity to make the discernment but it's not just a cognitive discernment like mathematics like well this is greater or lesser there is that in you when something comes into your periphery like that's not right there's also how you feel about it and that is complex paul says you don't want to have your conscience seared with a branding iron. You can break this part of you, your inner person. And I think God can heal it. I think he does heal it through his word because the word of God is alive and powerful. And the Holy Spirit lives in you. And he's inspired these words of the prophets and apostles. And, and so you can, be, you can be recovered from a seared conscience. But the conscience is that part of you that is saying this is the standard and this does or does not accord with it. And this is why if you don't think about it, but something comes comes to you, you're like, this bothers me. You haven't yet reasoned through what is the standard in your thinking that this is violating. But there's something wrong with that. I like to listen to, uh, to I, like to I like stand-up comedians a lot. 
I think it's a lot of fun because they're, they're smart and they're doing, and I like to laugh. I do. And it's, I'm not a joker or a clown or anything in my own perspective, but, um, I, I do like to, to check out some of these guys. And I noticed that the fun thing about jokes and irony, and you can find jokes in the Bible, but the fun thing about irony is that it's contrary to your expectation. And I think we're bordering on the concept of conscience because there's this expectation. And then the guy will say something completely unexpected and it, it tweaks us. This is related, if you will, to this immaterial part of you and your heart. And this is what God's commands do. They tell you what you're responsible for. So now you feel guilty. Hear it? You feel guilty if you don't do your job. Well, the Lord who loves you wants you to serve him this way. And he tells you to do it. And now you choose whether to do it or not. And your conscience it has something to say about that. Now, what do we do? What do we do? We suppress it. We suppress the conscience. And we start feeling bad. We start feeling bad. And now we're like, uh, and, and, and little kids, parents that watch them closely and love them and train them, watch their kids and see this happening. And they, you can see a defiled conscience sometimes, not all the time. But a lot of times what's bugging this kid here happened way back here because he's not processing and dealing with this thing that's violating his conscience. And there are things about us that we kind of all agree on with our consciences right? But there are things that God has said that you need to hear from him so that you know what the, the right thing is. And this is very interesting. The conscience of your culture, the way people in general in your pop popular culture today are developing their moral sense, their consciences run exactly counter to what God says. And they know collectively that X is wrong because we just feel this, this is the new morality. This is how somebody can on you know, in October say trans rights for children against parents or against parental rights over children. And then in November, th theoretically be elected at, at, at a, in a record landslide, well, a record landslide uh, <laughs> vote where supposedly more people showed up to vote for this person who said an eight year old who is going to mutilate himself because he's eight because he thinks he's a girl. An eight-year-old has trans rights against parental rights. And, and, and the world record turnout to vote for this guy. Now, the only way that's even possible is, that's questionable, but the only, <laughs> the only way that's possible is you have a culture whose consciences are 180 degrees out of sync with what God says. See, my, my conscience says, okay, Look at the numbers, look at the researchers, listen to the people that deal with this problem of, um, of uh, gender confusion, sex, sex disorientation. They call it gender dysphoria. That's, that word is going to, trans is, is no longer a good word because it's pejorative or whatever. As we continue to evolve uh, what right is. Um, please, everyone, put on your mask and um, hide your person. But, but as we go forward with this uh, this question of trans, I, I hear a child say, I think I'm a girl who's a boy. And I think we've got a, a horrible thing. That's a problem of confusion and concern for those parents and for that child. And as you look at the research, I don't have data and figures for you, but I've read reports on data and figures. These kids figure it out. That's a, it's not like a common 
thing. And it's socially constructed very often because as soon as it's popular, there's peer pressure to go there. And that's what's happening in the schools. So you get the kid peer pressure to join the popular culture. And then the teachers have their new morality of reinforced trans. And so you have this, this explosion that's happening. But the truth is that almost all cases where kids get confused and think they want to be the other, it's the temporary kind of fad and phase and uh, your body helps you be what you are as you grow up. These things are generally resolved. And for people, now, the people for whom it's not resolved, let's talk about that. The people that are really concerned about their sex orientation or their, their gender orientation. That is a real horrible hardship for someone to have to deal with, like any serious disorder. We need compassion and we need honesty. Here's an honest moment. A woman that wants to go trans to a man, right? They have what's called top surgery and bottom surgery. Already here at Christmas time, we're talking about trans and top surgery, bottom surgery. Here's the truth about this, this actress that says she's now a man. My, my, my pronouns are he and him, and I'm named Elliot. Vanya's always messing everything up. All right. When, when, uh, when she says she's going to be a man, I really hope for her sake, she has someone tell her the truth about what the surgeries can actually accomplish. Because basically what you end up with is a mutilation and constant lifelong wound care and nothing like what a man is. Nothing like the male body. You just end up with mutilation. And, and that's the truth. That's, that's the truth of, of where that would go. And it does, I'm sorry, it's, they don't have this. Now, in the future, if, if technology continues, maybe they'll be able to do more bioengineering. But right now, it's a, it's a literal horror show what these bottom surgeries accomplish or destroy. And so this is your conscience. But see, nobody's talking about that. Oh, don't talk about bottom surgery. If you're going to take an eight-year-old girl and she's going to say, I'm a boy. And then we're going to reinforce that with puberty blockers and eventual uh, male hormones. And then surgeries. If that's the, tr that's the trajectory the person's going to go down. We know statistically that's a prescription for suicide. Now, well, well if you don't reinforce it, then that's suicide. That's not, th that you, you don't know that. I know that the more you destroy yourself, the less, like, the less you're going to feel like persisting continuing on. And so this is the, but I'm just trying to illustrate the popular conscience. The conscience of the people that we're, we're ministering to is very different from your conscience. Five or six years ago, I'll tell a doctor in the emergency room, well, what do you do when you're not letting your kid, you know, get a pop his, pop his, uh, his scalp open on the corner of the piano? <laughs> What's your real job? And, uh, my answer is I'm a pastor. Oh, Christians don't like homosexuals. That was the first thing out of Dr. So-and-so's mouth. Christians don't like homosexuals. First thing I said that came into my mind was, well, <laughs> are you a homosexual? And uh, that was not well received. And I was like, why is that not well received? If, if, if it's so easily embraced, then why are you upset for me asking? I have no problem asking someone asking me if I am. The answer is no. And uh, we can talk about that. <laughs> I don't know why I was so offensive by asking. Well, uh, uh, no, 
Why no? Just say no, I'm not. Right? Anyway, um, the, the, the truth about that is that Christians love all people, even Chinese Communist Party members and their, their hijinks in the laboratory. We love them. We don't love their works. I don't love my enemies. Yeah, we love our enemies. And we pray for our enemies and bless those who persecute us. That didn't say I like communism. I think those people are deceived. Many probably demon-possessed in, in terms of their effectiveness. But de certainly deceived. And Jesus died for them. So that's what I think about. Uh, that's my conscience, but that doesn't play. People don't think that way. You say, love the sinner, hate the sin. See, this is, this is what I'm saying. You have to go with a biblical conscience and you end up with a radically different approach to life. But we got to get through uh, 16 more things because I just did a quick, quick subtraction. 20 minus four is 16. All right. The fifth point is by telling us what God wants. He's loading our consciences with his idea of right and wrong. That is so helpful. This is why when you are actually in, interacting with someone that's partially thinking, I mean, they've had to wake up from being woke and they're thinking, you know, they'll say something at some point like, you just think this way because you, you've, you've been raised Christian. But if you had a bigger perspective, well, okay, what you're telling me is that my presuppositions, my, my intellectual commitments, my, you know, my fundamental concepts that, that build my worldview are direct odds with yours. That's, what, that's all you're saying. And, and the simple question is, well, what are you basing your principles on? How do you know that your way is right and what Christ has said is wrong? But the way we know that something's right or wrong primarily is that God tells us. And this means we let go of our sense of self-righteousness and we're seeking to adopt God's perspective. So by telling us what God wants, he's loading our consciences with his idea of right and wrong. And so the more we're in his word, the more we commit to what he said, and the more we seek to please him by obeying what he said, the more our conscience is going to be aligned with his. And so where it is a badge of honor and then it's okay to lovingly push back sometimes and say, well, what do you have that's better than God who loved you and made you his, in his image tells you how to think about everything and everyone. Well, you hate such and such category. No, we don't. Jesus died for their sins. We hate sin and we hate it in ourselves first and we're sinners. And we're here to tell you that not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did, you can have eternal life. Sixth. If God has loaded our consciences, now our ethics do not depend on what we think, what we feel, the impulses of the culture around us. You're insulated from all the effects of the fall and the deception of God's enemy who has deceived the nations. And now you're thinking along with God. That's what he does with his word. Our ethics are no longer what we think. It's what God thinks. But I feel, but I want, but I, right, and own that and put that where it belongs because that's not God's word. We're not a law unto ourselves and we do have the Holy Spirit, but he is not working in you in such a way that your leanings or intuitions are authoritative like scripture. So we have to go to the word and get our ethics. And, and y'all all know this. But I'm showing, I'm trying to show you the real value in the world you live in to these awesome commands that we have in, for example, Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Seventh, 
The objective standard of God's perfect and holy word determines our sense of moral responsibility. Do you know what moral responsibility is? It's the word should. Well, there shouldn't be, there should be a law that stops that. I recently saw a comedian <laughs> weigh in on the political things. He had a really great idea. He said, we need a Supreme Court of Science. <laughs> to tell us what to do based on science it was chris rock said that he's always telling great jokes a supreme court of science because science says science says you do not need to wear a mask please do not go out and buy masks there's no reason to wear a mask that was what like may or april or something and then now if you don't wear a mask you're immoral because Something that's on the size of microns that could eat like the, 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 the aerosols on the level of microns that could easily pass through your hundred micron filter of your cloth mask. Okay. That's the science BB guns and chain link fences. Right. But the, but, but the moral culture is we have to hide ourselves. I think a lot of people are excited about the mask because it's uh, somehow an improvement. I also think I figured out why women in Connecticut, maybe not Connecticut, but women in other women will drive around in a car by themselves with a mask on. I think I know why. I think I know why they do this. Now, here's the reason. It's not mean like you're thinking. In another group of people, this might be an offensive conversation, but since everyone here is lovely, I don't have. But no, the, the reason they wear a mask, I'm pretty sure. Check me out on this, ladies. Um, because if you put on your face, if you put on your war paint, and then you put a mask on, that's going to wipe it off or mess it up. And then you're going to have like a line of foundation or something. When you take it off, as I do every time I leave a building, I'm out, fresh air, awesome. I love it, right? I think it's because if you don't put your makeup on in the first place, you put a mask on and I do up your eyes. I know you got to do the eyes, but you're not going to do the rest of it. Then when you take it off, everyone's like, well, what happened? So I would see, I see why women are driving around in a car by themselves with masks on. And I'm going to stop thinking it's because they're afraid of their shadow. All right. Enough joking. The objective standard of God's, forget what I think. It's God's word. He gives us his commands. And this is what I think about that. The objective standard of God's perfect and holy word determines our sense of moral responsibility. So I have a friend that will say the mask is loving one another. That would be a way to think about like if you think that it protects you or, or someone else from you and you want someone to be safe, then that's the rationale, right? And that's, uh, of course, what everyone's going to say they're saying when they say we must all wear masks. All right. Eighth, Christian duty is not possible from the energy of the flesh. And this is the thing that my, my grace-oriented brethren that don't like me talking about commands need to understand. Nothing God tells you that he wants from you is going to be accomplished by you without the spirit of God doing it through you. It's the power of God, not the power of our flesh. And I mean, well, I don't know much about God, but I just want to help the poor. I just want to give. I just want to take care of the orphans. These dead works that people do from the energy of the flesh are not what Jesus is talking about when he says, abide in me and I in you, and you'll bear much fruit for without me, you can do nothing. The fruit we bear that is not him working through us to him is nothing. And I like that, uh, that evaluation. Now this puts some people back in the, 
in the, uh, in the pew and out of the work. And they say, well, see, we're not going to go do anything because they're so committed to not do anything. We're lazy and we found an excuse. I'm not making an excuse. I'm saying every moment of our lives, we're supposed to walk by the spirit. And so not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're supposed to constantly be abiding in Christ. And so bearing fruit, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, and the things that related in, in Galatians 5, 22, 23, you're supposed to be walking in the power of the spirit of God all the time. That's why Paul says in the present tense, that I'll be drunk with wine in which is a waste or dissipation, but be filled by the spirit. Go on being filled by the spirit. And that's, the power of God working in you. And that's what I mean. The, the, the Christian duty is not accomplished through our energy. It's accomplished through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And so ninth, this means we're not motivated by legal, legalistic impulses to be right. Does anybody here know about the motivation to be right and therefore better than the other person you're talking to? Yes, you all know that we are all capable of being thoroughbreds in the gate, waiting for the, the bell and the, the, the gate to rise so that we can go off on the horse race and beat those around us. We all know what it's like to compete with someone else. The one-upsmanship. Jeff Foxworthy said, men don't uh, need to go shopping because they're so competitive. And I'm going to butcher his joke and paraphrase it. But he said, it would be like if, if when men go shopping, the wife gets, he says, hey, how'd it go? And he says, well, it wasn't so great. Well, what happened? Well, Earl bought a fishing pole. So Bob bought a bass boat. So I had to buy a marina. Because we are competitive by nature. That's the idea. And, and we do. And this is why people are like, oh, so bought store-bought cookies for the cookie give thing. So that's not as good, is it? Mm. Didn't go with uh, homemade cookies. And, and we, we're silly that way. We compete and we don't think about uh, why we're doing it. But the reason we're doing it is because we want to be right. But see, Christians don't want to be right. We want to get to whatever right is and then be that and make the necessary adjustment. That's called repentance, the change of mind. So we're not motivated by legalism or this impulse to be right or self-righteous. Our motivation, 10th, is to be pleasing to God. And it's a personal relationship. And this is why we say Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Religion is this. These are the rules. These are the cider house rules. These are the things that we do so that we're good with God. But that's not, but that's a, that's a mechanical view of God. And it's not how it works. If you look at the 10 commandments, they're very personal. You shall have no other gods before me because I'm jealous and I only want to be the only God you worship is how God says it. And it's a holy jealousy and he has the right to it. He's the creator. He made them. He loves them. He sustains them. And so he has the right alone to be worshiped by them. It's personal. No one else but me. And you stay with me. It's almost marital. It's called sanctification being set apart. And if you watch the 10 commandments, they're very personal. When you deal with God, the first four being how we treat God, the last six, how you treat man for God's sake. And it's always that personal relationship with God. Whatever you look in the Bible, the motivation is to be pleasing to God. Phil Collins said, I know Jesus. He loves me. He knows I'm right. And he said it sarcastically. Y'all probably don't, some of y'all don't know that song. I think what, 1992, 88, somewhere like that. Toward the end of the ride. I know Jesus, he loves me, he knows I'm right. I've been talking to Jesus all my life and he's criticizing, I don't know the backstory, but it's, a, it's, a, it's saying Christians are self-righteous basically. Well, it's exactly the opposite of the real Christian view. I'm a sinner 
and God is right and he's provided his righteousness to me and I just live in his grace. And that's his free gift of his love and I'm his child because he is gracious to me. And so I talk to him and in him I can be right but only because I'm being pleasing to him. 11th, Christian duties are like those in all personal relationships. This is really helpful. Now, this is something, again, your culture doesn't know much about this, but if you go to the Bible, the Bible's very clear on marriage has duty. A husband has a duty to his wife, wife to her husband, right? Now, in the romanticist view of love and marriage, I thought I was going to sing it. In the romanticist view of love and marriage, you have this idea in our culture, probably all cultures, that it's this unstoppable force. You just can't help it. And it's not like you're choosing to do anything. It's that you just do because you're just drawn. And um, it's, it's a trap. It's such a trap because it's not how life and love work. It's not how marriage works. It's silliness. Go to the Bible. It's very romantic, but not romanticist. The book of Ruth. It's all about duty. All about duty. Very romantic book. And we know, ladies, you married women. That if, uh, if you have the, the, the way we get along through the, the household chores, if you get them down and you know what your lane is and he's got his lane and maybe yours involves something with uh, dishes and his involves something with lawnmowers. I mean, something like this. I'm not saying that you can't be the other way around, but let's just say that you know what your lane is and you find out that you had committed that you would take care of, of dishes and he was going to go trim the, the front yard that when you got back from whatever your errand was, that he had both trimmed the front yard and done the dishes. You know, that's a very romantic thing that just happened. It's awesome. And, and some of you are like, oh, could we please get an application to some help out with, with the stuff at home? But we're talk, what we're talking about is duty. We have duties to one another. And it's, it's silly to talk about the household chores, but it's not that silly when what that does in the person's soul, when you think about them and care for them and provide for them duty. And it motivates us. It makes us stay home when we want to go go Roman. It makes us uh, do what we should because it's duty. And it's, your culture is very motivated today against that. But Christian duty is like all personal relationships. Now I know uh, many unbelievers that understand duty in marriage and have good marriages because they get it. I'm not here to get what I can out of this person. That's vampirism. I'm here to provide what I can. That's, that's being a provider and a healer and a, and, a, and a good farmer. I'm growing something. And that's, what, that's your job. We know about this with our animals. Now, the culture does know this, that the little dogs, you got to carry them around because they, they, they only have four feet. And so they have, dog, dogs have to be carried. If anybody has a dog in a purse, don't, I'm not making fun of you. I'm making fun of everyone else. But we have to carry the dogs around. And they need to be cared for and provided for. And that's a real moral thing. And we really have to do right by the dogs. But not so much the unborn. But okay, let's don't go there. Okay, about the humans that are being inconveniently uh, destroyed. Because, well, conveniently destroyed because they're inconvenient humans. Um, but let's back off of that cultural crit critique. I'm just saying our duties are like all duties in personal relationship. Children have duties to their parents. Parents have duties to their children. Let me show you how that works. It's very connected, very connected. Children need to learn what their parents are teaching them. That's their duty. I have a deposit to deliver. You need to get it. Boy, I like preaching this right here. I'm just going to line it up. Preach. 
I have a deposit to deliver and that's your job to get it. But you know what? More than your job to receive, it was my job to provide it. And that's a, that's duty. Both sides have duty. And if that happens, if I provide the necessity and the child receives it as his duty or her duty, then everything happens like it's supposed to. You have the relationship you're supposed to have. Oh, that makes, that makes parenting really hard. Yeah. It's a lot more than making peanut butter jelly sandwiches. It's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, it's an eternal responsibility. All right. Christian duties. I hope you understand personal relationships. So there, there's where your duty goes. So husbands, duties to wives, mothers and fathers of children, parents. So 13th, as children of a loving father, we need to study his teaching so we can be like him. Doesn't that make sense? That's all we're saying with, with the New Testament commands is I have a personal relationship with God. And we're saying like David, I'm going to build you a house. Try it. Try to tell God, I'm going to build you a house. See what he does. No, no, no. You're not building me a house. I'm building you a house, meaning a dynasty. You're going to have a son sit on your throne, glorifying me forever and ever and ever. Second Samuel seven. We need to study God's teaching so that we can be like him. Ephesians five, one become imitators of God as beloved children. And so walk in love with the image, the example of Jesus Christ. 14th, you're doing great. Stay with it. Every command to us in the Bible is a love letter from God. Every command I believe in the Bible is God saying, here is where the goods are. I like to say it this way. It is a check for a billion dollars. You need only to sign the back and deposit it. Every command, every prohibition is God saying, don't do that. You're going to, you're going to, uh, you're going to really regret what that takes you to do this. This is where the life, where the riches are. And I think wisdom illustrates that the wisdom discussions throughout the, uh, the Proverbs, for example, 15th, by saying what God wants from us, he is equipping us to walk with him. That is the deal. We can't do it because we don't know what it looks like because we're not God. And so God's like, this is the deal. This is what it is to walk with me. You need, Jesus says, to consider one another and love one another without regard to self. Provide what the other needs as I see it without regard to self. That's John 13, 34 and 35, that you love one another as I've loved you. You need to be about the care eternally for one another as I have shown you, self-sacrificially disregarding self. That's the deal. That's being God's image bearer. That's how you walk with him and be like him. If we don't do that, we're not being like him. There's a tendency, I think, to say, well, if we're supposed to be like God, then I want omnipotence. Let me get some sovereignty. I'd like to have some eternity. No beginning, no end. That's, that's just arrogance to say the Bible doesn't make sense. There is a sense in which you can imitate your father. It's called the communicable attributes and a sense where you would not be able to imitate him because they're non-communicable attributes or incommunicable. It just means there are things that God is that you can't be. And there are things that God is that you can be like. And one of those is love. And that's what we're talking about. The great command. God is equipping us to walk with him. And so 16th, walking before God in fellowship with him is the path of wisdom in all the Proverbs. Every time there's this is life or this is joy or this is peace or this is wisdom. It's always skill to live your life before God in a way that pleases him. 
So this is, this is my summary of what wisdom means in Proverbs, the skill to live your life in a way that pleases God, to walk before him. And this is, this is the path that God is always calling us to, for example, in Proverbs and in the, the wisdom Psalms. So stepping aside outside of God's instruction is folly. And that's the, there's these two categories we keep being presented. There's the minefield on either side of the path of wisdom. And that minefield is called folly. And you don't want to go in that minefield because you're going to get blown up. And God knows that and he loves you and he wants you to walk the wisdom, the life path. And that's what we're talking about with the commands of the Bible. 18th, we're almost there. Wisdom leads to life and good things. Always wisdom leads to life and good things. And it involves work. I think one of the interesting challenges of our time that there's always, there've always been people that found a way to slack off. 3000 years ago, Solomon's writing about the sluggard who folds his hands and little folding of the hands, little drooping of the eyelids and uh, your folly, your, your, sorry, your calamity comes upon you like a thief, meaning eventually tax deadline is coming or the bills are going to come due. And if you don't do your work today and tomorrow and the next day, then you're going to enjoy the good life until you're in debtor's prison. But wisdom always takes you to the good things. And it generally is through work. It generally is through effort. It generally is through some sort of sacrificing pleasure in the moment for the big payout, you know, at the, at the conclusion of the labor. And that's, that's the way the Christian life is oriented. We suffer now in the power of God's spirit to make up what lacks in Christ's suffering, says Paul, because the payday is coming. And that judgment seat of Christ's event, rendering what Jesus thinks of our works, is described as a testing fire that determines the value of your labor. And if there's any value remaining after the testing fire in 1 Corinthians 3, you get that value in your account. You have it. You have the gold, silver, precious stones. It's also described in the parable of the minas in Luke and in the talents um, for Israel in Matthew. It's described as the giving of greater and greater responsibility. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll make you ruler over these cities. And so the idea of rewards comes with governance, comes with rulership. What about us, Jesus? We've left everything to follow you after the rich young ruler bowed his head and walked away sadly in Matthew 19. What about us? What about we who've left you? Well, for those who have left everything, you'll receive much more in this life and eternity. You'll rule with me and you'll sit on 12 thrones in the regeneration of the, the coming of the kingdom. You'll sit on 12 thrones, ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. The coming kingdom has an administration. It's got a king, but he's got an administration. And that administration is the church. We're going to rule with Christ and his coming kingdom. And that's what you're being groomed for. And that's what wisdom is would tell you to focus on, keep seeking things above where Christ is in Colossians 3. So 19th, folly leads to death and waste. Folly leads to death and waste. Let me read it to you from Paul. Folly all through the Proverbs is death and waste. There is a, th a thing that seemeth right to a man, but the end, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. Says the thundering diction of the King James. But Paul says, in Romans chapter 8, so then brethren, we're under obligation. This is what I'm talking about, duty. You have a responsibility God's placed on you. Not to the sinful nature, the flesh. To live according to the dictates of our sinful nature. 
This is Romans 8, 12. For if you are living according to the dictates of the sinful nature, you must die. But if by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body and its sinful nature, you will live. Now, in context, I don't think he's talking about going to hell. I think he's talking about waste. There is a death of judgment for Christians called the sin unto death. And living by the flesh takes you to it. And it's horrible and you don't want that. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But he says, those who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, Roman adoption, where the adult son is now decreed the heir. That's what that adoption means. It doesn't mean orphans. It means you're, you're a child of the family and then you're designated the heir. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So we go from obligation to personal relationship empowered by the spirit of God. This is the Christian life. So the idea that you would deny the benefits of the commands of the Bible to me is a great absurdity. And I think it's folly. And I think it's theologizing without exegesis. You got to read the Bible and it's hard and it's a hard thing to do. And it's hard to read the Bible in Greek and then come away with an English synthesis of what's going on. So you can have an English theology and my brothers and sisters that are close and we disagree on some things. That's a, that's a wonder to behold really is when you have that process rendering a similar result because of the limitations of humans. So number 20 and finally summary, when God gives us an imperative, a prohibition, a probation, don't type before noon. It's a rule. When God gives us a probation, that would be something we're not talking about. Joel, you're gonna have to change that at some point. Um, when God gives a prohibition or a command, that's an imperative. He says, don't do this or do this. We in our sin nature tend to think that's restricting me. And that's what Satan does in the garden is God's holding you back from the goodies. But the truth of that, if you think about it for a minute and not feel like God says, don't do that with that person, but I want to, and she wants to, when the Bible says don't, we may feel like that's limiting us, but biblically thinking God's thoughts, he's telling us to receive all he wants to give us in a personal relationship with him, personal rapport. That's an old word rapport, but he's telling you how to walk because he wants you to enjoy everything he wants to give you. And only in the path of obedience is there the blessing that comes with obedience. And I'm not saying serve him so you can get the good things and be mercenary about it. I'm saying, trust your dad to provide the goods, but just walk with him. And the goods really are himself. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's kind of a riddle. If I delight myself in the Lord, then what are the desires of my heart? Him. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. It's the awesome thing of our time. And so I think you can really connect to God if you humbly before him seek to serve him according to what he's commanded you. So I say Christian duty is a gift. Merry Christmas. I pray that you will enjoy the gift that is Christian duty. Let's uh, pray for our church family and for our community in terms of this gospel mission. Our Father, we thank you for this eternal life. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you on your terms and thinking your thoughts after you. We thank you for the rationale of scripture, which tells us very simply, this is what you want from us. Don't let us reject it, but 
rejoice as we're commanded. You told us through the apostle Paul to rejoice in the Lord, Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Father, we would be so foolish to miss that imperative, to miss the privilege of obeying you on those terms. Father, we've mentioned many things today about the culture around us in terms of the contrast with what you expect, your ethics, and what the world says. Let it not be misunderstood in any of our hearts, Father, that we are talking about a people who are deceived, that are victims, in a sense, of a grand scheme of deception by your enemy. And in that deception, they are, unfortunately, unknowing yet willing participants in his agenda. And Father, this is the culture we know. It's the one we're in that we live in. Let us be in this culture, but not of it, so that we can serve you and those that you will bring to yourself. Let us be open with the love of Jesus Christ and with the message of his work on the cross. Father, if there's anyone here in the hearing of my voice, we pray for them, for their soul, for their eternal life, that they would see the simple need to reject any and all claims to righteousness in themselves, that there's no work they can do, no aisle they could walk, no candle they could light, no prayer even that they could pray that would merit eternal life, that the merit is all in your son and what we must do with him is trust in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We pray for the souls of those who may hear the gospel message today that they would consider Christ and trust in him. And just as Cornelius' household did when they trusted the very moment they heard the words and believed in Christ as their savior, they had the Holy Spirit. They were saved. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.